If you would, I'd invite you to open your copy of God's Word with me to Acts chapter 2. Now this morning we pick up, um, as I've been preaching through Acts, uh, I decided actually to skip ahead a few verses and my aim was to preach Peter's sermon, well not to just preach his sermon, but to preach a sermon on his sermon, I guess, from Acts 2, because that sermon is about Jesus' resurrection. It's about the Spirit being poured out, and Peter offers the explanation that the Spirit has been poured out by the risen Christ, and therefore that He is Lord. And so it's a resurrection passage, and I had, you may see in the bulletin, I had hoped to bite off 41 verses, but that was, uh, as it turned out, too much for me to chew. My eyes were bigger than my stomach. And so this morning we're going to be focusing on the first half of this passage, Acts verses 1 through 21, and we're actually going to be speaking more on the Holy Spirit. And so this passage isn't directly on the resurrection, and I kind of feel like that is some great sin on Easter Sunday. But it is the risen Lord who pours out his spirit upon us and who is even with us by his spirit. And so, in that way, it is a resurrection text. Let's turn to it now. And as uh, we always do, I'd invite you to stand in reverence for God's word if you are able. And actually, I want to still read the entirety of the text that I've chosen for today, even though I am just going to be preaching On the first half of it. So hear now the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter Standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders 
in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the title of this sermon is Power from on High. Arguably the central message of the New Testament and the central confession of all believers is that Christ is Lord. Meaning that he is the risen Lord who sits at God's right hand and rules and reigns over all. And if this is true, if Jesus is Lord and he really is reigning in a meaningful way from heaven, and if his heavenly kingdom has intruded and is advancing throughout the earth, then shouldn't we suppose that we should be able to experience it and to see it in some real way? Right? When someone 
against our expectations, claims to be someone important, or to have some special status or power, what is our natural response? It's that age-old challenge, right? Prove it. If you are who you say you are, prove it. And that's what we see here happening in Acts 2. Jesus proves the central message of the New Testament that he is Lord. And the way he proves it is by sending power from on high. In those words, perhaps you recognize them. I stole them. They come from the end of Luke's gospel. And there Jesus gives the apostles their central task to witness to his death and resurrection and ascension and to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to all peoples of the earth. And then he says, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And it's this clothing with power that I want us to consider this morning. And actually I have two P's for us. And the two P's are presence and power. Through the Spirit we are granted God's presence and power. Now I think power is really the central thing in our text, but first we're going to really sit and meditate in verses 2 and 3 because I think they touch on a deep and marvelous truth that's worth our exploring. And that is they teach us that God, by his spirit, dwells with us in a most intimate way. He dwells within us even. And now the people of God, each one of us, we are the temple of God. And as we'll see, this is because of Christ. And so through the spirit, we are granted God's presence. That's the first point we'll consider. Now in verse 1, Luke begins by giving us the setting. It's the day of Pentecost. This is 10 days after Jesus ascended, which was 40 days after the day of his resurrection. And the disciples are again together in a house. And this is likely the very same house in which we see them praying together in the upper room. We read of that in Acts chapter 1. After Jesus ascend the disciples, go to Jerusalem into this upper room and they gather together and they pray to Jesus, the disciples, and they're with Jesus' mother, Mary, and with his brothers. And they were likely praying for this very thing to happen. And this isn't a central point, but I think we should note here that God uses our prayers to bring about his purposes. The disciples knew the Spirit would come, and yet they still prayed. And in the same way, we ought to pray today, even as we know that it is God's will to rescue and redeem a people for himself, and that he will do so, still we ought to pray that the gospel would bear fruit, and that people would come to Christ, and we can trust that God will, in fact, use our prayers to that very end. So that's an aside, the disciples had prayed. And here at last, the promised spirit comes. And when he does, we see that there's no mistaking that God has arrived on the scene. For one thing, the disciples began speaking in languages they had never before spoken. This is a supernatural event. But the point that will demand our attention for the next few moments is how the spirit appears. In verse 2 we read, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
And the question we have to ask is, what are these things meant to convey? Why did the Spirit choose to show up in this way? With the sound of hurricane-level wind and with fiery tongues resting on the disciples. And I think part of that answer lies in the Old Testament and part of it lies in the Gospels. So first of all, let's look at the Old Testament. When God appeared in the Old Testament, he often showed up in the most awesome forces of nature. In a storm, in thunder and lightning, and in wind and fire. In Ezekiel's vision of God, God comes in a stormy wind. And he appears, Ezekiel writes, like glowing metal in the midst of a fire. Or you can think of the burning bush. You can think of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night as God led the people out of Egypt through the wilderness. Yet perhaps the clearest Old Testament example is when God descends on Mount Sinai. And we read in Exodus that the Lord had descended on it in fire. And also that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Throughout the Old Testament then, God's appearing in fire conveyed something of his great power and holiness. And downstream from this, it also conveyed that God's people would be destroyed if they entered into his presence unauthorized. Fire is not a harmless element. It's not innocent. It's a terrifying element. And in Scripture, we see it's the primary agent of God's judgment. Again and again, God warns his people of the great day of his wrath when he will judge the wicked with fire. And so I think if you asked an Old Testament believer, and even a New Testament believer, Do you want God's fire to fall upon you? What do you think they would say? No, we do not. Please. God told Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Setting foot on that mountain would have meant death. And similarly, if anyone entered into the holy of holies, that innermost part of the temple where God dwelt, Even if they were a priest, if they went in without God's permission, God's holy wrath would burn against them and would destroy them. God is perfectly holy and righteous, and God's word is clear. Sinners may only enter into God's presence by his grace and by a blood sacrifice. And so here at Pentecost, when the Spirit comes and appears in the midst of his people, this is God himself, the Holy One, And yet they are not destroyed? This is a very significant thing. And actually it very well may be that the disciples are protected from the fiery tongues which rest overhead but don't consume them. And the reason I say this is because of what we see in the Gospels. And you may remember that John the Baptist, he compares his baptism with the baptism of Jesus. And listen to what he tells the crowds. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
And listen to what he says next. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The fire that Jesus baptizes with is clearly a destructive fire, but surprisingly, it doesn't destroy Christ's disciples. And I think the key to unlocking this mystery is found in Luke, in chapter 12. There, we see again this connection between baptism and fire and judgment. But this time, it has to do with Jesus. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Here again, in one breath, Jesus now speaks of both judgment and baptism. Yet he notes that the baptism which must take place is his own, and it greatly distresses him. And that's because the baptism which he is referring to is the baptism of God's judgment, when God pours out his wrath upon Christ at the cross. And you may not be used to thinking of baptism as a form of judgment, But scripture is quite clear throughout that baptism can point either to God's blessing for those who keep the covenant or to God's judgment to those who break the covenant. And it was on the cross that Jesus bore our sins and so he was considered a covenant breaker. And he endured a baptism of God's judgment. The fire of God that consumes the wicked fell on Christ. And now for those of us who trust in him, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in fire does not pose any threat. In Acts 2, the disciples are baptized in the Spirit. They're baptized in fire, and yet they're spared the judgment. The New Testament speaks of believers putting on Christ and wearing his very righteousness as if it were our very clothing. And this we may do because Christ is risen And he is seated at the right hand of God and is indeed interceding for us. The Jesus who sends his spirit, when he sends his spirit, that spirit comes as the spirit of Christ, bestowing on us his very presence and life and righteousness. And so now because we have that very righteousness, Christ's righteousness, God by his spirit comes to take up his residence in our very midst. And we become the temple of the living God and of his Son. This is the good news of the gospel that sinners such as us, right? If we were before God on the judgment day, how terrifying would it be to have our sins laid before God? I don't think any of us would want to stand before God and have our thoughts laid bare before him. To have the things that we are ashamed of to have to do those things before his very eyes. Yet that is the reality on judgment day. The books will be opened. There is a judgment. But for us who believe in Christ, there is protection from that judgment. God can come and he can dwell with us and in our midst, and yet we are not destroyed. That is the hope of the gospel. And I think that this truth and this blessing It's something which is far easier for us to comprehend at an idea's level than it 
really is to take to heart. It's all too easy to never stop and wonder at the reality that for those of us who are in Christ, we always have God with us in the most intimate of ways. The Old Testament is clear that God is keenly aware of all our thoughts and desires and all our ways, and he multiplies his thoughts toward us. Psalm 40 says he multiplies his thoughts toward us. God cares about us deeply. But the truth we discover here is that he doesn't just care about us from afar, but he is with us and even in us. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This is a personal reality. God calls the whole church, the corporate church, the temple of God. We are all living stones that together form the temple of God's Holy Spirit. Yet he also speaks of our very bodies individually as the residents of God's Spirit. And how often do we stop to consider and think about this? When we're anxious, when we're full of fear, and when we're alone, or when we're faced with temptation, how often do we stop to consider that God is with us indwelling us? And how about in prayer? It can so often feel that God is far off. We don't always realize that indeed he is not far off, but he is with us. He couldn't be any closer. God's very presence, that is what we are granted through the Spirit. That's the first point. And the second truth is this. Through God's Spirit, we are granted God's power. And we'll get through the remaining verses at a better clip, I assure you. We're about halfway through at this point, so we've got about 17 verses yet to go. Now in verse 4, we read that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the Greek word for tongues here, glossis or glossa in the singular, could just as easily be translated languages. And this becomes clear in what unfolds as the disciples begin speaking in other tongues, visiting Jews from all over the Roman Empire. Remember, this is on Pentecost. This is a national feast for the Jews. And so many Jews had traveled to Jerusalem for the occasion. And here they're drawn to this noise. And in verse 6 we read, And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. The Jews who were from outside of Israel and lived among other nations, and not only Jews, but also proselytes, that is, non-Jewish converts to Judaism, Jews and non-Jews from all over the Roman Empire, even Cretans and Arabians, they all heard and understand what the disciples were saying because the disciples were speaking in their own native languages. And in verse 11, we learn that the disciples were declaring the mighty acts of God, which I think almost certainly the mighty acts which had taken place in Jesus' life and his, in his ministry are what's being referred to. The mighty acts are those acts which Jesus himself did, and they are his death and resurrection and his ascension. The disciples were filled with power in order to declare this news of God's salvation. And so the Spirit, when the Spirit grants 
power to God's people. It is for the purpose of witness. You may recall the theme verse in Acts 1.8 where Jesus tells the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And already here in the very first minutes of receiving God's Spirit, the disciples are beginning to fulfill their calling as Christ's witnesses. And so Pentecost... Pentecost is not so much about the Spirit granting new life for the first time. That's not the central thing at Pentecost. The Spirit has been renewing God's people and granting spiritual life and friendship with God since the beginning of time. Old Testament saints lived lives of faith and obedience and pleased God, just as we do now, only by the power of God's Spirit. Again, then, Pentecost is not so much about receiving new hearts, but it's about God bestowing new power. And the reason this is so important for us to grasp is because what it tells us about our calling as believers. If you have God's Spirit inside of you, then God's Spirit has and will continue to empower you to be a witness to Christ. And this is an encouraging truth. We have been called to join the apostles in making disciples of all nations. An incredible task. But we have not been left to our own resources. We have received power from on high. And as I was thinking about this, C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, came to mind. Many of you have read it and know the story. And in that book, there are four children, and they enter the land of Narnia. And in that land, there's a great witch who rules, but Aslan, the great lion, is coming to restore his kingdom. And the children are on his side against the great witch. But before they enter any serious battle, what do we see? We see that they're given gifts. Peter is given a sword and a shield. Susan is given a bow and a horn. And Lucy is given a vial of healing liquid as well as a dagger. And in so many epic tales, it seems that the protagonists, the good guys, are always given up front some sort of gift or power or special ability that will enable them to complete their journey and to prevail in their task. And in many ways, this is what the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost is about. We are called to be witnesses. That's what Acts is about. And often we don't feel adequate for this task, but we are not alone. God empowers us by his spirit. Now this point about power leads us now into the first part of Peter's speech. First we get this extraordinary crowd gathering event, and then Peter, like a news reporter broadcasting live at the site, he stands up to explain what has just unfolded. He begins by dismissing the allegation that the disciples were drunk with wine. He says it's only nine. That's what the third hour of the day means, the the third hour after dawn. The disciples hardly had time to get seriously intoxicated. And then he cites a lengthy passage from the prophet Joel. He says that Joel had foreseen this very day. And in the first part of that passage, what we see is that this prophet who prophesied anywhere from Four to six hundred years earlier, it's hard to date Joel very precisely, 
But Joel looks forward to a great day of salvation and deliverance for God's people. And this is where Peter picks up the prophecy. And the first statement is really a summary statement of the rest. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And the result of this pouring out of God's spirit on all flesh, that is all people, is that they will then engage in prophetic activity. That's where the emphasis lies. All of God's people, without exception, become prophets. Peter goes on, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even as we saw in the Old Testament reading this morning, God often spoke to prophets in the Old Testament in dreams and visions. He continues, even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, what is a prophet? A prophet is someone who declares the mighty deeds and words of God. And that's exactly what the disciples are doing. Again, back in verse 11, they are declaring the mighty acts of God. They are prophesying. Now, there's a very important question here for us, and perhaps you're already asking it. Does Peter mean to say here that all Christians, including each one of us, will exercise in our lives some sort of prophetic role? And let me be very clear about this. The unavoidable answer is yes, he does. If you have the Spirit of God, you will prophesy. Now, before you go and get worried that you don't know what is going to happen to the stock market this week, or even what you'll be eating for dinner this evening, I hope some of you know that much at least, or else the rest of us are in trouble. Uh, No, if you've never seen into the future, rest assured that is not the kind of prophecy that is spoken of here. That's not what's in mind. And that kind of prophecy, foretelling a future in advance, because the Lord revealed it to you, That we know that did indeed take place during the apostolic period of the church. However, even in that time, prophecy was primarily about declaring what God had done in Christ. And it's in this sense that believers today should understand our own prophetic role. And to help us understand this and to get our minds around it, many of you will already know the phrase, the priesthood of all believers. It arose during the Reformation, and it was a reaction to the Church of Rome's insistence that only priests had the right to teach God's word. Yet what the Reformers saw as they searched the scriptures were passages such as 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And listen to this that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To say that all believers are empowered to prophesy is to say that all believers are empowered to proclaim the excellencies of God. We are all little p prophets, just in the same way that we are all little p priests and little p kings, a royal priesthood. Peter says. In the Old Testament, those were the offices. It was the prophets and priests and kings. They were the ones who were specially anointed by God's Spirit 
to fulfill the task which he had given to them. But not everyone in the Old Testament was gifted by the Spirit with such power. Yet what do we see here in the New Testament? In 1 John 2, the apostle writes, You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. And Paul too calls all believers anointed in 2 Corinthians. Again, that Old Testament language of the Spirit's empowering is used here of all of us. Paul writes, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. There again, we see the language of the spirit indwelling us, and it's paired with this concept of anointing. And what we see in scripture throughout is that when God gives his people a task, he always gives them the power to fulfill that task. If you've ever been in a job that you haven't been properly trained for, you know how just, just how frustrating it can be, right? It's no fun spinning your wheels when the person next to you is ripping through projects at five times your speed. Thankfully, when God calls us, he equips us. And we have this as a promise. And so perhaps this can become a point of prayer for you if it's not already. If you have no idea what prophetic ministry should look like in your life, then ask that God would show it to you. Ask that he would point out who it is that you might bear witness to. Parents, it may be that your primary sphere of prophetic ministry is in the home to your children. Students, your peers at school need to hear you witness to the Lord Jesus. Those of us who are in the workforce, we have the opportunity to witness to our coworkers, our clients, our bosses. And some of you will have the boldness to strike up conversations with your neighbors or with the barista or the stranger at the park. And our collective prayer should be that we might become more and more like the church of Thessalonica. Paul says that they had become an example to other believers. And he writes, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. And may the same thing be true of us more and more as God gives us the power to speak. Now, alongside the prophetic ministry of God's people, and this is where we'll end, Joel speaks of a day of judgment. And we see that in these challenging verses, in verses 19 through 21, where we read of wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And Joel mentions blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And this sounds to us very much like end-of-the-world sort of stuff. There's some who take it that way. These signs speak exclusively to the very end of all things, just before Christ returns. Others, however, and I'm in this second camp, they see these signs spoken of as signs which will accompany the entirety of the last days which we are in right now. Peter's citation begins, And in the last days... It shall be. Here and elsewhere in the New Testament, it is made clear that the last days are now, that they are the days between Jesus' first and second coming. The Apostle John says that many antichrists are already in the world, and he wrote, It is the last hour. And so these signs of warning and judgment 
They are meant to encourage people toward faith and repentance while there is still time before the very end. And they make the message all the more pressing. And so Joel's passage ends this way, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is the good news of the gospel. Everyone who calls on Jesus shall be saved. And that's what we see even in the room in which the Spirit filled. The disciples were saved from the fiery judgment of God. And then they proclaimed his message of salvation in Jesus in power to the nations. That's our message. That's the message that God has for us to declare to the world. And so let's pray that God would help us to be faithful bearers of it, faithful ambassadors, faithful witnesses. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a great and awesome thing. Lord, that you have poured out your Spirit upon us, the Spirit of Christ, the Righteous One. And because you have poured out your Spirit, your fires do not destroy Lord, but we are preserved because we are clothed in his wonderful righteousness and his perfection. Lord, I pray that the wonder and the joy of this great salvation might fill us. Lord, such that we might desire to share it with all who you put in our path. God, give us boldness, Lord, and courage to be witnesses to the resurrected Christ whom we worship this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.